Welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. I'm here today with my very special guest, Dr. Jennifer Putsey. Dr. Putsey is a professor at the College of William and Mary, where she teaches English and gender sexuality in women's studies. Among her course offerings, she's taught both transgender fictions and a 400-level course called 150 Years of Little Women. And after we record, she will be sending me the syllabus for that, please. (laughs) She is the author of several books, including Fair Copy, Relational Poetics, and Antebellum American Women's Poetry, and Identifying Marks, Race, Gender, and the Marked Body in 19th Century America. Dr. Putsey, I am so thrilled to have you here. Welcome to the show. How are you? I am doing very well. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes, I am so excited to have you here as well. I do want to hear more about the 150 Years of Little Women course, which maybe you can detail in my next question. What is your relationship to little women? I really can't remember a time I didn't know little women. I remember when I was little, I had one of those sort of mini, a lot of people have talked about them on your show, that sort of mini (laughs) condensed version with the pictures. I saw a photo not too long ago when I was doing research for my class of the cover. And it was just like this visceral blast to my brain. Like I remember having that, but I also had a cup that belonged to my grandmother. So I suppose my mother must have given it to me or I just took it off the shelf or something like that. That was from like the early 1900s that I read when I was younger. So I, I read it. It's a book I've read over and over and over again throughout my life. And I think is probably part of the reason why I'm a 19th century Americanist. I mean, I can't believe that that doesn't have something to do with it. I even had a dream once about Louisa May Alcott (laughs) during graduate school. It was a very sort of quiet dream. We were walking in the snow and she had a hood, you know, like a cape on with a hood. And I didn't know who I was walking next to. And it was like this New England landscape. And then she pulled back her hood and looked at me. It was her. And I remember being like, wow. That was such an awesome dream when I was so cool. She visited you. <laughs> yeah. She absolutely came to visit. Wow. So yeah. So now, I mean, I've actually I've written about Elcott a little bit. I've written about my contraband, <laughs> the, the short story, and a little bit of hospital sketches, but never about little women. But I've taught the novel several times now in that senior seminar, as you mentioned. And I've thought about doing, we have like major author courses and I've thought about a major author course on Alcott. That would be fun. But students always love her and she's a joy to teach. So, Yes. And so you you haven't had a a course teaching the entire Alcott canon, but you have taught 150 Years of Little Women. And I am fascinated to know what that course looked like. So we started by reading the novel. So we read the novel once in a hurry. Mm-hmm. plow through it, initial responses, what's your relationship to it, like really starting in sort of an emotional place. And then we spent some time talking about some of Alcott's other works, so studied her sensational fiction, I think one semester, so I did it twice, I think one semester I had them read Work, which is a later novel. And then we read a couple of other novels that were published around the same time. So in order to think about race, we read a novel, an 1859 novel by a woman named Harriet Wilson called Arnig, which is very much about like race and gender and labor. And we also read another novel called The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. So getting them to think about genre and about like why Little Women is the way it is and how it's 
both similar to and different from other things that were published at the same time. And then we ended the semester with two contemporary versions of Little Women. So thinking about how people are sort of remaking or borrowing that plot. I mean, all my students are always like, why is, like, because there's not really a good trans, I mean, there's not really any trans sort of take on Little Women, a scholarly take. Yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. You're preaching to yeah. like the choir master. <laughs> yeah, I can vouch for a number of very good books that take a queer perspective on Joe. Yeah. We just did an interview with Kathleen Gross, who wrote Joe, an adaptation of Little Women, sort of. There's another middle grade graphic novel adaptation, right. Meg Joe Beth and Amy. And I'm looking at Greater Nothing, which is a new new one that's written by four authors that kind of transports little women to the second world war and joe is like openly queer yeah. that one but i have not investigated that but I, so i know that that's on the radar but i'm very excited that people have been so receptive to having the conversation because i think it's long overdue and i'm very Absolutely. excited to be speaking with someone who's been teaching like transgender fictions and 150 years of little women <laughs> yeah <laughs> because yeah. it seems to me like there's a lot of overlap there absolutely and I mean, one thing, so when I do my trans fictions class, I've been doing all contemporary fiction. Right. But one thing I'd love to do is to do sort of a historically, you know, a historical take or do a sort of 19th century American trans fictions, you know, because I think there's stuff there. I mean, I'm teaching a novel right now called Futtered for Life that was published in 1874 by Lily Devereaux Blake. Have you read this? No, no. Okay. And it's going to be giving something away and I'm so sorry. That's okay. But there's a character throughout the book named Frank Haywood, who is like dashing journalist figure. He's the hero. He rescues the heroine. And we've been spending four days on it. And our fifth day, my students on Monday are going to find out that Frank is a woman dressing as a man. And yeah, and so there's all this great stuff in there. And it's just a couple of years after Little Women. And it really, I think, speaks to a lot of the same issues and a similar figure, right? I mean, a writer, someone who's very handsome, but also, I don't know, he's described as delicate in some ways and yet very handsome and brave. So yeah, there's so much good stuff. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. I know that in addition to Little Women, there are Louisa May Alcott short stories that similarly reveal at the climax that someone is actually not the gender they were posing as, right? Yeah. Like, hmm, hmm, yeah. <laughs> what a surprise that Elcott could be thinking about those things. No, I mean, it goes back so much further than we think. I love Nevada, and I love the new edition of Nevada that was just published by Imogen. Oh, I didn't even know there was a new one. Yeah, no, it just came back into print after like a decade, which is so, I mean, run, don't walk to your local bookstore. Yeah. If listeners don't know what Nevada is, Nevada is a wonderful novel by Imogen Binney that is about a trans woman who has a midlife crisis and steals her girlfriend's car and goes on a road trip and winds up in a very small town in Nevada where she meets a person who is what we would call an egg, like a trans person who hasn't hatched yet right? and sort of tries to coax this trans person out of their shell. <laughs> and it's just wonderful. But that was, I believe it was published first in 2013 by Topside Press. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of been regarded as like the first trans novel. And I mean, maybe you as the trans fiction professor can speak to how not true that is. But it's also something that Imogen Benny is like, I did not invent <laughs> trans literature, right. unfortunately. Right. Well, and yet it was important, right? And Topside was super important because yeah. Topside put out a nice sort of cluster of novels by trans folks. Yeah. Aoki's novel is, came out with Topside. So there are a lot of good texts, a lot of texts that I teach in my class. Yeah, unfortunately, Topside is no longer with us, but Farrar, Strauss, and Drew just published a beautiful oh, wow. of Nevada. So you can. That's great. It. It's, it's wonderful. That's good news. 
which March sister are you? And again, for the purposes of this podcast, even though no one ever claims him, Lori is a March sister. <laughs> Nobody's ever claimed Lori. No one's ever claimed Lori. It breaks my heart. I have to say Lori frustrates me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Joe. I mean, I hate to be boring and say Joe, but it's like, Joe, you know, I wanted to be a writer when I was little and there was just something about Joe, how she was different and how she, she did her own thing. I liked when she cut her hair, even though I never had short hair as a kid. I've always been, you know, an introvert. I love that she would go up in the attic and write and read and all of that. So definitely Joe. Yes. But I'm always interested when I teach it. So I ask the same question and that there really are folks, you know, who consider themselves Amy's and, and Meg's and shockingly even Beth's. You say shockingly. I, I, mean, I think Beth is one of the more common. I mean, obviously, Joe is the most common answer, but yeah, I get Beth's. Like, Beth is, yeah. I think. But she dies. She, well, <laughs> she makes a real impact before she dies. <laughs> yeah. So, did I, I don't think I told you this story, but so my daughter refuses to read Little Women. Yeah. My daughter's trans. She's 16 and she refuses to read Little Women. She refuses to read anything that I think she should read. She resisted me on Harry Potter for a long time. And then it turned out she was right to resist me. So I'll <laughs> go with that. But so she won't read Little Women, but she did read on her own without telling me like a condensed version. <laughs> like I think just like the first book, not both books. And then she's read that Meg, Joe, Beth and Amy, which is a graphic novel version set in, is it like Afghanistan? Or it's not set in Afghanistan, but the father goes yeah. off to war. And so we were talking about the novel at one point and I mentioned Beth dying and she was like, what are you talking about? And I said, Beth dies. What do you mean <laughs> that am I talking about? And she was like, Beth doesn't die. Because of course, <laughs> Beth doesn't die in Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, and apparently did not die in that condensed version that she realized. Yeah. So we have a standing argument about whether or not Beth dies, but she still refuses to read the novel. I mean, it's like, no way, she doesn't die. Well, I feel like if Beth is still living in your head, then that's a good reason not to read the whole book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just don't do it. That, I know. that is fascinating. So there are readers for whom Beth is alive. And that's, yeah. that's just fascinating. I, yeah, I mean, we say that Joe is the obvious answer. I have a friend, Hal Shreve, who is a author and a librarian, and he sent me a poem that his library put on a poetry contest and... I can't share it on the podcast because it was written by a child, but he, yes. he privately shared with me a blisteringly passionate three-page poem that a child had written about Meg March and how like she was the best one. And it was so good. And I think about it's it all so the time. Fabulous. Like, Meg has shooters out here. Like that's <laughs> not passionate about yeah. these things, you know? Don't understand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Today we are, there's actually quite a lot of Meg in today's chapter, yes. chapter 20, oh. Confidential. Dr. Putsy, would you like to just recap this one for us? Absolutely. So Marmy is coming home. She's been off nursing Mr. March, who has been ill while he's a chaplain during the Civil War. Beth becomes ill while Marmy's gone. And so Lori sends for Marmy to come home before even the girls do. He anticipates needing her. So she comes home. But by the time she comes home, Beth is already recovering. Really, I think it's important to remember that Meg and Joe basically save Beth's life. And so Marmy comes home. Everybody's thrilled to see her. There's this reunion that I think it's super interesting that the authorial voice here is so strong. Like I think the chapter even opens with the eye. So yeah. I don't think I have any words in which to tell the meeting of the mothers and daughters. So then Lori is dispatched to go get Amy. She's been with Aunt March. And we thankfully have a quick scene with Polly the parrot, who is like one of the best characters in the whole <laughs> novel. So 
Marmy comes to see Amy. There's this emotional reunion in which they sort of talk about how Amy's going to be a better person now because of Beth. And they worry, she worries a little bit about whether or not Amy is turning Catholic, but thank goodness she's not. <laughs> so they talk about her sort of resolve to be a better person because she wants people to care about her if she it were to get sick. Then we switch back to the home again. And Joe approaches Marmy to say that she's concerned that because John actually is falling in love with Meg. So she found out about the hidden glove that he carries around with him in kind of a creepy way. My students always found that super creepy that he keeps her glove. And Marmy, I have to say, kind of disappoints Joe and is not as disapproving of the whole situation as I think Joe hopes she's going to be. So they sort of circle around this topic for a while before Meg comes in and shuts it down and they go to bed. So all of Joe's fears about growing up and about losing Meg and men entering into this domestic sphere are raised in this chapter. So it's a, it's a really great one. Yes, it's a fascinating one structurally because we've been so laser focused on Beth and Beth's recovery. Yeah. The chapter opens, so that's fine. Anyway, marriage, how do you have a pessimism? <laughs> right, right. right. Yeah, we get Beth's recovery, the very brief cameo from Polly, who calls yeah. he, he calls Amy a good girl, blesses her buttons, and begs her to come and take a walk here in his most affable yeah. zone. So, and then the last chapter, I think he invites the spider to come and take a walk, which yeah. I love. That's one of the most hilarious parts in the whole book, I think. Well, now, and this is interesting. I'm just noticing Polly, he, him, his... Yeah. That's oh, cool. yeah. That's You're right. That about? <laughs> All these genderqueer. Do we have a confirmed genderqear character? <laughs> when I was in Paul is a parent. We did it. We're parents. Yeah. Certainly Polly is a girl's name, even when it's applied to a parent. Yeah. I mean, I call in Polly historians if... You know, yes. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to like full tech little women control F Polly and just see if this is consistent. This, I mean, this is fascinating to me. Yeah. Polly had to be fed, took Polly with her. Polly. No. Yeah. Polly's always been a he, him. Interesting. Wow. That's All right. Then that's going to, yeah, the article on this. <laughs> yeah. And we can think about Polly, the parrot and pirates and like ships as a third space in which queerness was perhaps more acceptable. I mean, we can really <laughs> zoom out. Yeah, absolutely. Where I wanted to begin. <laughs> no, but it's good. Yeah. But it's good. so this chapter contains a lot of the most openly queer statements from Joe. The first but not the last in the book instance <laughs> of Joe saying, I just wish I could marry Meg myself and keep her safe in the family. So queer. What do we think of that? I think it's fabulous. I think, I mean, she's sort of scrambling here to come up with all these ways in which Meg won't get married. But before that, she's talking about how she doesn't know if Meg cares for him or not, right? Because in novels, the girls show it by starting and blushing, fainting away, growing thin and acting like fools. Now, Meg don't do anything of the sort. She eats and drinks and sleeps like a sensible creature, right? So like, it doesn't look like it does in novels. But what could it look like, right? Maybe it's going to look like this. Like, I'll marry her. I'll marry my sister and keep her in the family. She'll do anything to keep her sister in the family. But because she's this sort of masculine figure anyway, she might as well just marry her, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think I've spoken before about how when I was writing that piece for Oprah Daily, I sort of included this. I just wish I could marry Meg myself as a statement of Joe being interested in marrying a woman. And my editor was like, 
I mean, are you sure? We don't like we. This is we don't want to. We don't want to be seen as promoting marrying your sister. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's to me. I read that more as. I, I mean, it's it's such a baffling statement. For one, it's just incredibly odd. But tags in with there's another. You know, she really starts ranting and is like, "The world will end if Meg marries John Brooke." Absolutely, he'll go lovering around the house. Yeah. He's going to carry her off and make a hole in the family and I shall break my heart and everything will be abominably uncomfortable. And she says, oh, dearie me, why weren't we all boys? Right. Which I think is a really interesting statement, right? Because it's not as if they wouldn't get married if they were boys. Right. But it's like somehow because they're girls being married disrupts that whole circle. Like they get sort of carried off to some other household. But of course she doesn't. Meg moves in next door, you know? So it's this weird statement. Like men don't have to give as much of themselves or give up as much if they get married. I guess I just, it's, she seems to be like grasping for solutions and her solutions don't make a lot of sense in reality. I read that and I'm like, okay, so I mean, Joe, why weren't we all boys? I, I imagine this is a thought to which Joe returns a lot. Right. Yes. But never for all of them. Right. No. I mean, that's what's interesting is she's suggesting yeah. it as like a possibility for everybody. But even that, like, you're right. Brothers would go out and get married. Would they feel as close to one another if they were all boys? Would, would yeah. like, it just, it, Joe's really on one here. <laughs> yeah. I think the anxiety about Meg getting married winds up being more about Joe's anxiety about becoming a woman. Absolutely. Getting married, right? Yeah. I mean, earlier it says that she says she can't follow Meg into a world of admiration, lovers, and things of that sort. So like Meg is like on a trajectory Mm -hmm. to that world and Joe can't follow her because she can't marry herself, but she also can't fall in love with the guy. Yeah. And she says, I just wish I could marry Meg myself and keep her safe in the family. She later says, I'm disappointed about Meg for I'd planned to have her marry Teddy by and by. That's another solution. So Teddy is, I guess, like family. And it's shocking because... So, well, and it cracks me up because Joe is always trying to like give Teddy away to somebody else. Right. You know? Here she's like, well, he could marry Meg. And then like later on in the book, remember Beth when she figures out she's dying? Joe thinks, well, maybe she's in love with Teddy and wouldn't it be great? Or she like, she so does not want Teddy, you know? Like she doesn't want Lori, but she'll give him up to everybody else. But basically yeah. that's another queer solution, right? Because she thinks of... Lori as a girl or herself as a boy. Yeah, it's not a heterosexual marriage that she's planning for them. You know, she's planning something for her own convenience. She's like, okay, so if Meg marries Teddy, then we'll all be part of the same kind of family unit. Right. Right. Yeah. And so that Meg is the first solution. When she loses that, she's fine. Beth is in love with Beth. Perfect. Beth and Lori. I see the vision. And when Beth is like, what are you talking about? I'm dying. Yeah. It reminds me of of Emily Dickinson falling in love with her sister-in-law before they get married. And she basically marries her lover or her woman she loves off to her brother so she can keep her in the house forever. Like they live next door to each other. You know, apparently this was a 19th century solution to these things. No, I mean, you're saying it. And I I feel like that's even a trope in queer literature is like Uh, a lavender marriage or you marry my brother or like I marry your brother so that like we can (laughs) kind of house. Right. Like that's that's a thing. And what's fascinating is that Lori does end up with a merch sister in the end. Right. We signed through with Meg, struck out, Beth, nope, 
<laughs> you so, need it. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. What do you think that says about Louisa May Alcott's authorial hand in this relationship? Was there some importance for her in pairing up Lori with Amy in the end? Well, I think it goes along with what you always insist, right? That Lori is a March sister, yeah. right? And that he will do anything to make that real. Mm-hmm. That I think his marrying Amy and, and seeking marriage all over the March, March family is about trying to find a way to formally be part of that family. Yeah. But I think, you know, when I said I have my issues with Lori, I think part of that is because letting him in is the beginning of the end. Yeah. I mean, they had this tight domestic female circle. And then the second they meet Lori, he becomes part of the, the PC and the PO. He becomes... Yep. Goes on their like adventures when they're doing Pilgrim's Progress. He's going to become part of the plays. And through that door comes John Brooks. So, yep. (laughs) And he becomes Amy's husband. So really letting him in destroys the little Eden that they've created, the little female Eden that they've created with father going conveniently going off to war. You know, that's very true. Yeah, it's it's like something is lost and gained. Yeah. His admission to the family. I'm thinking about... The moment in the 1994 version, 1994 film, where Laurie is courting Amy and he says, I envy Joe's happiness. I envy Professor Bear's happiness. I envy John Brooke for marrying Meg. I hate Fred Vaughn, who was Amy's suitor at the time. Uh-huh. Beth had a lover. I would despise him too. Just as you have always known that you would never marry a pauper, I have always known I should be part of the March family. Wow. Yeah, I have forgotten <laughs> about that. Wow. So that really makes it overt. Yeah. And that that is not a thread that Greta Gerwig pulls on. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's such a creepy character in the 1994 movie, too. It's Christian Bale. And at the yeah. time, we have to remember, at the time, Christian Bale was newsies. He was like a little lad. <laughs> but I, he delivers that monologue like... Batman, like Patrick Bateman. It's just like Kubrick staring at Amy the whole time. <laughs> so there's almost a sinister air to it, which I, I think is very funny. But I think it also speaks to what we've been talking about here is it's this kind of everyone marrying one another is endgame, not just because the novel, I was going to say the novel must pull from familiar characters, but obviously Professor Bear comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. she's seeking like a narratively satisfying resolution for Lori. And I, for whatever reason, it was just really important to her that this, I think, kind of gender ambiguous feminine boy get to be part of the March family. Yeah. Like it's something I talk about when I talk about people being skeptical of, oh, so Joe just isn't interesting enough to be a woman. I'm like, well, no, like if you if you read the book, Alcott creates a space for Joe to really want to be a man and for Lori to really want to be I think wanting to be a woman and ev- evidencing that in several places, but also just wanting to be part of this family full of women and to escape from his very sex segregated male space. And right. I mean, if you think about like little women, what is little women, if not just like a story of this, like all female space and this all male space next to one another. And the two just by osmosis joining right. one another and upsetting the order of things, but making everyone happier in the end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they merge basically. So Meg marries John. Yeah. Amy marries Laurie. Beth's only relationship with a man is with Mr. Lawrence. Right. Yeah. She sort of becomes his granddaughter. Yeah. Joe is really the only one who branches out, even though it's through her that they make that first connection. Yeah. It's something like even this 
the nuclear family structure is just, I, I mean, I, I'm going to take that back as soon as I say it, because I don't think there's anything nuclear <laughs> about little women's depiction of a family structure. I, like we've talked before about how in like the addition of Hannah, for instance, she essentially creates a household that is run by two women. Right. Yeah. And Lori is essentially being raised by two men. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Although I'm not, I'm not intimating. I really thought about that. Like, yeah. I'm not intimating anything about John Brooke and Grandpa Lori. <laughs> though, like, that's a fun, if anyone wants to write the fan fiction, I will read it with curiosity. It's too. But even like the home is not enough for Joe. Yeah. Right. In the same way, the home was not enough for Lou. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's the one who goes off to war. Yeah, I mean, it's what's interesting is the Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy book, which I'm like looking right at. That's one of the graphic novels. Joe comes to realize that she's gay, but she doesn't really, she doesn't end up with a woman. Mm-hmm. It just sort of happens. In Kathleen Gross's book, Freddie it just becomes uh, like a cute, like 13-year-old girl in Joe's like school paper. <laughs> oh, wow. And that's her take on Bear. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. But I think, well, we're not talking about Bear. We're not talking about I wish we could talk about, let me come back and talk about Mr. Bear, because I think that relationship is queer too. So, well, yeah, I mean, we've got nothing but time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Seriously, tell me, why do you think Professor Bear and- Well, I think he has, he has sort of feminine aspects to him. I don't know. I didn't read that chapter in preparation for this or that that, that in preparation for this, but I, I do think he has feminine aspects to him. I don't know. I'd have to go back and revisit it in order to, to I, remake that argument. I will say the only time Bear has ever been appealing to me as a character. I do think like Freddie Bear is like very cute in Kathleen Grimes' uh-huh. book. But the real hitting of the mark for me was in George Cooker's 1930s Little Women. I yes. don't know the name of the actor. I can maybe look it up. But that Professor Bear, <laughs> he's sort of been like, de-aged and turned into a hunk in some ones. George Cooker, a famously openly gay director, playing with Catherine Hepburn, who I don't know that we have time to unpack all of that, but Catherine Hepburn, very much someone who said, I thought I was the wrong sex. I went by Jimmy. I've lived my life as a man. So we have, I would argue, a transmasculine actor portraying Joe. Right. And right. the relationship between Catherine Hepburn's Joe and George Cooker's profe- version of Professor Bear is this older man taking this young twink out on the town <laughs> and like, <laughs> showing Joe opera and ballet yeah. and art museums and kind of exposing Joe to this world beyond their own knowledge. And it, it's rather sexless <laughs> and it's more about like camaraderie and, and friendship until... Professor Bear pops the question and Joe is like, oh, I'm actually really happy with you. And I think what George Cooker is bringing there is sort of an element of intergenerational gay male relationships. Oh, interesting. And how older gay men can kind of mentor and enrich yeah. the lives of younger gay men who are like coming into yeah. the and coming out, which I, so that's my interpretation of the movie. That's the only time Bear has ever clicked for me. I think that Bear is just lovely. Do you have a favorite cinematic Bear? No. I don't. I mean, I don't. I agree. The relationship in the book is tricky. And most of my students hate him, you know, and hate the solution. I don't love that she marries at the end. But I think if she does marry somebody, I don't mind that it's weird. Yeah. (laughs) I kind of appreciate that, that it's not Lori. Yeah. And how do we square? We are discussing Bear. How do we square the eventual marriage to Bear with 
Joe and Marmy's discussion of marriage in this chapter? Well, he's certainly not a rich man. No. <laughs> right. And Marmy says, I don't want you to marry a rich man. I mean, Marmy wants him to marry for love, to marry for love and virtue. I mean, I think we can speculate about whether or not she loves Bear, whether that's like a convincing yeah. thing. You know what I I think I'm gonna I'm gonna dodge your question, okay? Because <laughs> I don't really. I mean, I guess you know it's sort of what Marmy would want, right? I mean, she wants him to marry for love, to be comfortable, but not to marry for money or anything like that. But I think one weird thing about Marmy here, I think, like she ends the the chapter by saying she does not love John yet, but will soon learn to, right? And there's sort of like a way in which you know, in that she knows that John is interested in her, and that. Joe knows that John is interested in her, that Lori knows that John is interested in her. Everybody knows about this except for Meg, really. And everybody's just kind of watching her. It's this sort of like little experiment. And apparently Marmy will know before Meg does that she's in love with him. I don't know. It's this this weird sort of way of thinking about watching your children. I don't know, having your children fall in love and move on. Like you're kind of, she's kind of pulling the strings there. Yeah, there's a, a mixture of satisfaction and regret when she says, oh, Meg doesn't love John yet, but soon. Yeah. Is that just part and parcel of anything that any parent feels watching a kid grow up? I think so, but it's weirder than that, though, right? So she, uh, a couple chapters before that, she somebody's talking about John and she's like watching Meg to mm-hmm. see how Meg responds. And then when she's gone, I think Mr. Lawrence writes to her and says something about Hannah guarding Meg, guarding pretty Meg. Right. There's this way in which like sort of Meg's sexuality is burgeoning and they're all like so aware of what this might mean that they've got to observe her to find out the exact moment when she really needs to get married. Yeah. Like the remark about Hannah guarding Meg like a dragon. That phrase struck out to me because there's a similar note in a letter that Alcott wrote talking about how she guards her own mother like a dragon. Oh, wow. And that was specifically in the context of, by that point, Alcott was a celebrity and they were getting a lot of visitors to the house and it was sort of just wearing on like Abba Alcott's nerves. (laughs) Yes. And to have so many, you know, people like banging on the windows and wanting to come in and meet the real Joe. Right. And, and, but even then she's like, well, I I simply, that makes me uncomfortable, but really I'm like, I'm telling you not to come for Marmy, for Abba. (laughs) That's the real. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, God, if, if ever a woman deserved some rest, it was Abba Alcott. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and, and I mean, maybe because we were talking about Marmy, Abba Alcott, we know, was a very vocal suffragist. She mm-hmm. was saying, like, I plan to vote even if my daughters have to carry me. Mm-hmm. She never got the chance, which is tragic, to vote. But she was a progressive figure as well. And she was often the breadwinner for the family when Bronson was indisposed or having an episode she would work, she would earn an income, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So she was a very unconventional mother figure in a way. I think Marmy is in many ways less. Absolutely. Yeah. She's far more conventional than Abba Alcott. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's doing her duty like during the Civil War, but that's it. I mean, yeah. all of that is absent from Little Women, you know? I mean, that's yeah. one of the huge questions of the novel, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, where is the abolition? Where are Black people in this book? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Where are the politics? And I mean, it would be a very different book and probably wouldn't have had the life it has, but you can't help but wonder what might it have been. Yeah. No, I mean, I I have to wonder about maybe the commercial choices that went into that. 
As for where are the Black people in Little Women, there is a brief mention in one of the closing chapters as Joe establishes her school that she accepts a Black student other schools had rejected. Right. I'm, which I'm not going to read because there is like an 18th, a 19th century racial slur <laughs> in that yeah. sentence, but she joyfully accepts a Black student, which again, Bronson had accepted Black students to his school and that had been all these wealthy white Boston families had pulled their students and it was part of the family's economic downturn. So that kind of comes in right toward the very end. We get another version of that with Lori being like half Italian and having dark brown mm-hmm. skin and curly black hair. We've talked about how like that, even that has kind of been whitewashed under the story in subsequent years. Sure. I've had students who read Hannah as sort of a sure. black figure, right? Yeah. This sort of second mother, yeah. I mean, not intentionally African-American, like uh-huh. I don't think Alcott is writing a black character, right. but I think there are ways that she can be seen as that kind of figure. Yeah, I can see how a modern reader could maybe miss that Hannah's Irish yeah. and be like, so is this housekeeper is black because the socio-political racial dynamics of the day were such that Irish people were not considered white. And right. I talked in the episode with Egan Dean at some length about the boulderization of Hannah's speech and how like even when she writes, she has this kind of racist pigeon English. Right. <laughs> so I don't think... It's appropriate to say, you know, like, oh, Hannah is a Black character because she is Irish, but she certainly is a character of color of the day in the same way that Laurie is, right? And it's another thing. I think one thing I I would love to see, and, and we've talked before about so many beginnings, which is a Little Women retelling by Bethany C. Morrow, which takes the action of Little Women and places it in a freed person's colony and the entire cast of Black. I don't know this. That's a superb book. I really recommend it. But so Lori, along with the rest of the cast, is black. And he's also, he's he's presented as having dark brown skin and curly black hair in Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. But just owing to, like, in Morrow's book, because the entire cast is black, the entire context of the book is has been mm-hmm. shaped by it now being in a freed person's colony, the question of kind of, like, Lori's racial marginalization relative to the marches isn't something that really has been explored. And... Well, and so it's interesting then in, in light of that, I, I mean, is that a factor in Marmy saying, Lori isn't grown up enough for Meg. He's altogether too much of a weathercock for anyone to depend on. Like, <laughs> is that Marmy having a little anti-Italian racism moment? I mean, what's going on there? I don't know, because she's been supportive of him. She's, right. she's like yeah. letting him in. Mm-hmm. But certainly, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm thinking of something that Daniel Okrin said in our interview with him. He mm-hmm. said that whether Laurie continued to advance in society would depend largely on who he married. And if he married like a Sicilian woman, then yeah. his, his whiteness would effectively disappear. Whereas if he married a March sister, that would whiten him <laughs> in a way. Well, it's, yeah. it's interesting to think about like his grandfather, the way his grandfather keeps a sort of tight rein on him in the yeah. beginning. Like maybe the grandfather, maybe Mr. Lawrence is aware of this, right? And is holding on to him until he can find this family that he can kind of release him into, right. aware that there are four options here for marriage, right? I mean, we could see him as controlling this mm-hmm. situation as much as Marmy is. I mean, in 19th century, parents did that. They thought about, yep. you know, what people do that now, right? They think about where they're positioning their children in order to find potential mates. Yeah. And I mean, especially after Lori's father said, to hell with you, grandpa, and ran off with an Italian woman. <laughs> right. There's even more control on on Lori. Which is- well, right. Because if he marries someone of questionable 
ethnicity or race, mm-hmm. then the, the bloodline is, it can't be sort of taken back to yeah. white, right? The whiteness is too diluted yeah. at that point. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of, are you familiar with the painting Ham's Redemption? No. So this is, this is an extraordinarily racist Brazilian painting of three generations of women and their skin tones become light. They're all like in a family portrait type setting and their skin tones are lighter by the generation. And the youngest woman is holding a baby in her arms and the baby is completely white. And the very dark skinned grandmother is lifting her arms to heaven. Like, hallelujah. Wow. It's so, and I'm going to have to look up when that was painted. Yeah. Okay. So that was 1895 was when that painting was done. It was by a Spanish painter. He completed it while teaching in Rio de Janeiro. So it's it's not contemporary to Little Women. It's actually 30 years after Little Women. Same idea, though. But it's very much expressing this idea of, isn't this wonderful that, like, the bloodline has <laughs> become, like, it's just, yeah. I don't know well, how we got here, but. <laughs> that could be another yeah. reason why Joe and Lori aren't supposed to be together. I mean, they're both brown. Right. Lori, sorry, yeah, Joe is often described as having brown skin, Versus Lori's dark brown skin. Right. So what would the result be, right? But Amy, of course. Yeah, a regular snow maiden. Yeah, right. And I mean, it's interesting, this chapter, I'd never thought about this before, but Mm -hmm. this chapter, it's always seemed fragmented to me that it has this Lori and Amy and Marmy section and then this Mm -hmm. Marmy. But maybe it's not that fragmented. Maybe we're supposed to see here and in that previous fabulous chapter where Amy writes her will, sort of like the early germ of that relationship between Lori and Amy. Right. Yeah. So it's not just the Meg conversation with Joe between Joe and Marmy that's confidential. And it's also not just this conversation about Catholicism, which we haven't touched on, but it's also this this (laughs) Lori-Amy connection, right? Yeah. Where he comforts her, falls asleep there Mm -hmm. in the room. Yeah. So maybe that's part, maybe these are all part and parcel of the same thing. Yeah, I, I think like we don't, the racial dynamics of little women aren't often talked about, which I think is a real shame. And I think is also partially due to just like the picture was perhaps more different than we in 2022 can even really comprehend. We have Bronson Alcott, who was an abolitionist, but was also, also held really regressive beliefs about skin color. And we've talked before about how wanting the abolition of slavery didn't necessarily mean a belief in racial equality. Absolutely. And how Bronson Alcott, who was willing to risk his entire family's income and drive them into poverty over the moral principle of admitting a Black student to his school, was also vehement that darker skin tones were associated with worse behavior. And even looking at his own children, Lou Alcott had a like a slightly darker complexion and darker hair than her sisters. And he was like, this must be why she like misbehaves so much. Right. Right. And you know, that comes into play here just as far as what we know of Amy is like, she has blonde ringlets. She is a regular snow maiden compared to like Joe's chestnut hair and brown skin. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can take brown skin to mean, who knows what that means (laughs) from a a 19th century perspective. But it's interesting how all of these things are coming into play here. And kind of just bubbling underneath the surface in a very real way, I think. Well, yeah. And Alcott herself, based on my contraband, has some, yeah. some problematic views on race. Like most 19th century Americans, she <laughs> had her share of yeah. racism. And she certainly privileges like the light-skinned characters in that, in that story and imagines sort of a romantic past yeah. for the enslaved characters. And Yeah. And, and obviously that doesn't deal with that subject matter 
as directly in Little Women as she does elsewhere. But I think we can't, like, Bethany C. Morrow in talking about so many beginnings was like, if the Civil War was background noise for you, we are like, we are not the same. <laughs> right, right. And how making the March family black and make, putting them in a freed person's colony changes dramatically not every aspect of their lives, but everything from where their father is to the hobbies that they can take up. Right. I've got to read this. It's it's really good. Yeah. So Joe is still a writer. She's a journalist. Like she's sort of an earlier Ida B. Wells figure. And like she wants to tell the story of the freed person's colony and get it out there. But then Meg's aspiration isn't to be an actress. And Beth, she's a really talented seamstress. Amy is a dancer as opposed to an artist, just because dance was something that would have been available to her in a way that <laughs> painting wouldn't have, right? Right. So it's it's like so many things have to be reshaped if yeah. we change the context that dramatically. Whereas, again, in this book, for as much as we talk about American Girl dolls a lot on this podcast, but <laughs> so American Girls, they have two characters now from the Second World War. There's Molly, who is a white girl from Illinois on the home front. Her dad's at war. He's a doctor in the war. She's waiting for him to come home, right? So that's the one character. And her stories are largely, the entire first Molly book is like, will I be able to make a Halloween costume when fabric is rationed? (laughs) (laughs) That's her plight. (laughs) And then the second Second World War character that they've introduced is Nenea, who is a Hawaiian girl. Oh, wow. (laughs) And the first Nenea book, it opens with, she has this dog that she loves And the dog is scared of loud noises and there's been like someone dropped a pan in the kitchen. So the dog is all skittish. And she's like, oh, Oh, I can see where this is going. And then she goes on into the garden to pick some vegetables for breakfast. And, (laughs) you know, like Japanese bombers are. I knew it. She's like, oh, "Oh, no, my dad works at Pearl Harbor. (laughs) Oh, no. And you you compare this to like Molly's story. Yeah. Actually, Molly's like, will I be able to put together an awesome like hula dancer all week? Oh my God. Is it actually a hula dancer? It's literally a hula dancer. And then literally that yeah. next bit they do yeah. about World War II is a Hawaiian girl. Right. So Molly's like, I think it would be really fun to dress up as a Hawaiian girl. And then Nenea is like, oh my God, my dad works. My dad's going to die. My school yeah. was blown up. And my dog, who is scared of loud noises, has run off and we can't find it. So like, I, I think it's actually one of the, as a, as a connoisseur of children's literature, I think The Nenea book is one of the most effective in this series because it not only like puts Nenea at the center of this very horrific event, but the remainder of the book is kind of a hero's journey looking for her missing dog. Oh my God. That's what takes her like through her community and to the hospital and all these other places because she's looking for her lost dog. And those are two very different stories of two home front experiences in the same way that Alcott's Little Women and Morrow's Little Women are radically different because of the race of their characters. And we we can say like Molly's dad is at war. That must be terrifying. She doesn't know if he can come home. At the same time, Nene is looking up and seeing bombers flying overhead and is like, my dad is at Pearl Harbor right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, uh, and at the time Alcott's writing this novel, it's in the the middle of Reconstruction. Right, I mean, the, yeah. the Southern states are finally coming up with new constitutions. They're electing new legislatures and all of this is going on and there's none of it here. There's no sort of foreshadowing of it here. Why do you think that is? I think she was savvy, right? I mean, I think Alcott was always aware of her audience and she needed to make money with her writing 
And she, you know, who knows what Alcott would have done had she had enough money to support her writing, you know, who knows what she would have written. But I also don't want to lament this book that never existed, right? I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that she knew what she was writing, who she was writing for. I mean, she sort of made fun of it, but yeah, she was a savvy writer and she was a professional. I mean, at a moment when not a lot of American women writers were professionals. Yes. I always get a little bit frustrated by this this sort of argument that like the sensational stories were what she really wanted to write. Right. And then this is the book that she had to write. I mean, we all bitch about what we're writing from time to time, even books that we love. Mm-hmm. You know, I could love the project I'm working on and I can write an email about how much I hate it. So I never really want to take all of those comments because she put her family into this and her sister who died and she loves. I find it hard to believe that she hated this book as much as she sometimes acted like she did. No, I mean, it certainly transformed her life. It's the lens through which a lot of people view her, through which most people view her. It's also true that the sensation stories were economic, too. Sure, absolutely. She was not writing these horror novellas for her health. Right. She was trying to make money. And this is something that personally gets my goat, which is that Alcott was an incredibly shrewd and hardline business person. Mm -hmm. And nobody talks about, well, I think there's some like fun negotiation in Gerwig's movie. So we get the very first scene where the editors, he's like, what? Like we pay 25 for things of this sort. We'll pay 20 for that. Love you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the end, we have Joe is like negotiating for her copyright. She's wearing a, a snazzy little bowler hat. Yeah. She's like, what percentage of the royalties am I going to get? One of my favorite discoveries from the Alcott archives is... This is in the Houghton Library at Harvard, and they only have the editor's side of the correspondence. Like, they don't have Lou's letters to the editors, but they have the editor's side. So there's one letter that the editor sends, and he's like, the very idea of you asking for more money on this next project, which I think was Eight Cousins or a Rosen. It was an old-fashioned girl. He's like, you want more money for an old-fashioned girl. Little women might be a fluke. We don't know. How dare you ask for more money? You have other options. If you want to, like, go publish with someone else, then you do it about that royalty rate you're asking for is highway robbery. How dare you? And like, he's like just an absolute, the nerve of you to ask for more money after phenomenal success. And so that was one letter. How dare you? The matter is closed. We are giving you this lower royalty amount than you asked for. And then there's a gap in the correspondence where Lou wrote some letter back. We don't have that. It's not in the Harvard archive. And then the next letter from the editor is just one line, like, dear Ms. Alcott, we will pay you the royalty rate of like, <laughs> oh, I wish I knew what we knew what we she said to him. Well, then there was so bad what was in that gap. But yes, she was like, she was a pro. Oh, bitch better have my money. That was right. Even after this one success, like she was not going to bow down for anyone. She was like, I know my worth now and I'm not afraid yeah. to negotiate, which gets left out in the picture, I think, especially in like what you pointed to, the thing of she didn't really like writing Little Women. She loved writing the sensation stories. She wrote those for money. <laughs> you know? Yeah. She would- but you know, it's you're making me think too. I always think it's so weird. So all the movies, and I don't want to go off into a big discussion of the movie. All the movies always want to end, or most of the movies want to end with, they want to conflate Joe and yeah. Louise Mailcut yeah. and end with the book being published. And what that book is always changes based on the particular movie. Mm-hmm. At literary historians, you've probably heard this before, but they all hate the end of the Gerwig movie because <laughs> how they depict the printing press. Has anybody told 
So like the printing press is depicted all wrong for the 1860s. It's like one little printing press in a room that would have taken 500,000 hours to print books, you know. But of course, it's so quaint. Yeah. The movies can't resist that urge. When really in Little Women, which I think is super interesting, is that Joe publishes lots of different things in Little Women. I mean, she's publishing poetry and stories and all sorts of things like all throughout the whole novel. But they always like that sort of grand gesture at the end. Yeah. Even at one point, Joe publishes a novel in Little Women. She gets it yeah. published and it just doesn't do what she wanted it to do. Yeah. And it's not at the end. It's not nope. that grand gesture. It's yeah. like a learning opportunity for her. Yeah. Well, and my stu- it's so funny because my students sometimes say, well, I hated it at the end because she didn't become an author. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's been an author the yeah. whole time. Yeah. Like they want that grand ending at the end, like at the movies, but she's been writing the whole time. We've had this. We have what we want. She has already published her first stories in the newspaper. Yeah. At this point in the novel that we're at, chapter 20, she's still a teenager. Yeah. Like, she's like a published author and Marmy's patting her on the head being like, oh, just stay little as long as you can. Right. Right. I know. Alcott published her first book, not even her first story. She published her first printed book when she was 17 years old. Yeah. It was a collection of stories and poems that she'd written for Emerson's young daughter. Yeah. They were like flower fables or yeah, something flower like that. Flower fables. And like you when you say that, it completely changes the narrative from like, yeah. She wasn't this struggling creative. She was like, first of all, even though she lived in poverty, she and her family knew some of the most influential literary figures of that sure, time. Absolutely. I mean, come on, Emerson was like a family friend. And to say, like, I published my first book at 17, it was for Emerson's kid. <laughs> okay, so that's just yeah. point on like how this came about, right? Yeah. Not to take anything away from that accomplishment, but she had, if not wealth, she certainly had connections. Yeah. She like knew people and she had learned from them a lot of the business of publishing as well and had kind of like carved out a lane for herself. And and I I think it's important to hammer home like how the business sense and the way that often the motivation was economic rather than creative because something I got a lot, like kind of the number one refrain from Turves when I published my thread earlier this year about my belief that like Alcott is best understood as a trans man was Alcott wanted to be a writer because women couldn't write. I'm like, I (laughs) know. Where do we like that? Like, because women couldn't write, women couldn't write, or they couldn't publish their writing. And I'm like, do we want what? to go through Alcott's publication history? Like, you are so well, and also women were among the most popular writers yeah. in the 19th century. Yeah, there were occasions where Alcott wrote under a pseudonymous name, and that could have been for gender reasons. Alcott often published just as L. M. Alcott. Mm-hmm. Right, the first edition of Little Women just says L. M. Alcott. A.M. Barnard was another pseudonym. So both of those sort of have a place of gender neutrality, right? Right. A.M. Barnard might have had just as much to do with wanting to keep Alcott's name as the children's friend or like the person who writes these children's novels so that people aren't like scandalized by the, you know, by the adult horror novels about like ghosts and (laughs) cross-dressing. But Alcott at the end of the day was a business person. She was a good business person. She enriched not just herself, but her family. And that doesn't get talked about. And I mean, this is a chapter all about marriage and women's economic prospects. Literary wealth had not happened for Alcott at this point when she wrote this. Right. Earning the daily, like Alcott had been earning her own income for some years, but was not rich by any means, but was also disinterested in marrying for any reason, it seemed, by this. Yeah. What do you make of that balance? 
as far as I know, I mean, they, people like to say that Alcott was in love with Thoreau, but I, I don't know where Emerson. people Emerson. get that really. Well, no, people say that she was kind of in love with Thoreau for some reason, but who would be in love with Thoreau? I have no idea. I she wrote a poem called that. Thoreau's Flute for whatever you want. <laughs> I'll just, I think you are thinking of Emerson because Emerson married Anna Alcott, her older sister, and kissed Anna on the cheek during the ceremony. And she was like, it might be worth getting married to get a kiss from Emerson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it has been so lovely. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? Last thoughts on this wonderful chapter here. My last thought is so trivial, but it's what I've been thinking about through this whole thing. So we were talking about keeping this female society and sort of not creating a hole in the society and that Lori enters in. And I had the weirdest experience this morning. I was going to get coffee and I remembered that I had the audio book for little women oh, on, yeah. my, on my phone. So I was like, I'm going to listen to this. While, I'm going to listen to chapter 20 while I drive. And the weirdest thing is that I had forgotten that it's narrated by Christina Ricci. And I just got done watching Yellow Jackets. <laughs> Christina Ricci plays this absolutely creepy character in Yellow Jackets. Yeah. Like, there are no spoilers here, but plane crashes. It's got this girl's soccer team on it and then it crashes like in the middle of nowhere. And Christina Ricci, she's like the adult version of this child character. She's an outcast. She's the team scorekeeper or something. And she whips into gear and starts taking care of everybody. She ends up chopping this guy's leg off because the plane landing on his leg. And then later in life, yeah. you see Christina Ricci as this figure who's kind of crazy you yeah. know i mean yeah. never really and so like i'm listening and she's also kind of wanting all these girls to like stay together and be this society and nobody will leave the island and all this stuff so it's like this weird double take when i was like oh my god christina ricci is narrating little women <laughs> <laughs> like trying to sort of keep this little family this family circle together <laughs> that's right well okay so then parting question i guess joe meg Amy, Beth, Lori are on a plane. The plane goes down. <laughs> what happens? Wow. Beth sacrifices herself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she takes care of everyone until they're all going to die and they cannibalize her or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> Joe gets help. Don't you think so? Joe packs off into the wilderness. Mm. Yeah. Joe's like, I'm Katniss Everdeen now. <laughs> it's been real. Right. It's them rescued. Yeah. No, they can't eat Beth. They wouldn't do that. Polly. They <laughs> eat Polly. Polly. Which, by the way, I did look that up. Wikipedia says it is a given name, most often feminine. It mentions four male Pollys. Yeah. And they are, okay, so Bill, all of them are like nicknamed Pollys, like Bill Perkins, known as Polly, Graham Farmer, nicknamed Polly, Polly Umragar, who is an Indian cricketer whose first name was Polan. And then Polly Wolf, whose first name was Roy, and he was a baseball player. So, yeah, I mean, who can say which regards? Yeah, I think that is perhaps the greatest discovery of our hour together. Yeah, I think. And it will change the face of scholarship on little women. We cracked this wide open. It's okay. (laughs) So it's a victory. Dr. Putsey, it's been lovely. Where can people find you online? Where can they buy your books? Is there anything you'd like to... to Oh, the usual places. I teach at William & Mary. Mm -hmm. So you can find me there and you can write to me and let me know what you think about Polly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, apply to William & Mary and take Dr. Putsey's classes. Take... 
I don't know if 150 years of Little Women will be offered again. It sounds like that was a... Yeah, it's no longer the 150th anniversary. So I did it for two years in a row, 2018 and 2019, to mark the sort of two-year publication of the two books. But I do think I'm going to leave next year and I'm going to be writing. And then the year after that, maybe I'll teach a Louisa May Alcott major author class. Well, I will be fascinated and I might try to audit. So (laughs) me as always, I am your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca. I have quit Twitter since Elon Musk's hostile takeover, (laughs) but you can find me at PeytonThomas.ca. You can also buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. And I will also say that you've been very generous with your ratings and reviews. We currently have a perfect five out of five stars on the U.S. version of Apple Podcasts. However, we did just get our first mean one-star review from a turf in the United Kingdom. Of course, it would be the United Kingdom. Where <laughs> so, it would be. Wherever you live, but especially if you live in the U.K., if you enjoy the show, go ahead and drop a rating and a review for us. Your reviews will help other people find the show, and they will also balance out the turfs. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next week. Yay.